Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you, right now you sit in the heaven and you laugh at the affairs of men. You're mighty, you're great, you're majestic in every way. Father, we are thankful that you have drawn us from darkness to light. You have taken a people who were far away and you've brought them near. Those who are not your own now call you Father. You've done this all through the great and glorious work of your Son, who has come and with perfection and sinless beauty has lived for us, died for us, has been raised for us, and has ascended for us, enthroned and now seated at the right hand, far above rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church, for us, that now through the gift of your Spirit we are being transformed from glory to glory, walking in a might that the world doesn't understand, walking in a confidence that is eternally grounded, rooted. Father, would you give us a great joy in this life today and tomorrow, this week? Lord, may this word impact and lead us from from despair, over things that are going contrary to our plan, or even in the midst of joy for temporal issues that are going for us, may our joy and satisfaction be rooted in Christ. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for many of you, things have changed with this election. We have a new president now that's has a second term, and to some of you, that's of great joy. To others, uh, great dismay. Um, If your hope has been rooted in a candidate, uh, then in all likelihood, you're either elated or quite deflated. The good news is you get to do it all again in two more years, and uh, probably four after that. Uh, But for the Christian, things really haven't changed drastically for us. I mean, at least in terms of what our call is, from God toward the world and toward the society in which we live. I mean, God has, last week we looked at how the Christian relates to the government, and this week we're going to look at how the Christian relates to the world. How does the Christian intersect life? In our passage today, Jesus is going to explain how we are to influence society for the good, that we have a role to play for the good of society. Really incredibly important that you get this, to balance last week. You know, we've been studying through the Beatitudes in chapter 5 in Matthew, those eight Beatitudes, they're really values of the kingdom is what they are. I mean, they are marks of the citizen of God's kingdom. So the one that knows God and is rightly related to him by faith and knows where he will be spending eternity, these are the values that mark his life. And these values that mark his life are meted out in society by us being salt and light. So that's how you live out the Beatitudes, is by being salt and light. So regardless of changing governments, disintegrating cultures, precarious financial landscapes, the reality of it is you're called to be salt and light. And so if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read 13 through 16, so we're just going to pick it up. We kind of structured these two sermons that way that we could finish out the Beatitudes as well as deal with whoever got elected president, frankly. So 5.13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are really startling words. I mean, mean, if you really take these at face value, you ought to be greatly encouraged and greatly challenged because of what's ahead for us. So the first thing I want you to know is first that the church has been established to be involved in the world. You are to be involved. You are to have an influence in society. You're to be engaged. You're to be in the game. You you, you see this. Now, last week, if you remember, I talked about the Christian government. God has established a government for the protection of its people. And and it's for the promotion of the welfare and the liberties that we have. it's It's to prohibit the wrongdoer from continuing on. It's been given the sword. Even godless, even corrupt governments are still called to maintain order in society. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Think about Greece for a minute. The country of Greece is in a financial freefall. I have no idea what's happening, but it's going to start bleeding over into their society. In fact, this was a quote from an interview with the public order, uh, the public order minister, Nikos Dendias. He said this, Our society is on a razor's edge. And this was after the shipyard workers were striking and broke into the Department of Defense Ministry. He says this, If we can't contain ourselves, if we can't maintain our social cohesion, if we can't continue to act within the, within the rules, I fear we will end up being a jungle. Now that is a defense minister, public order minister of Greece. This is a country. This isn't a small little town. So anarchy, God is opposed to anarchy. All of God's creation is ordered within a government. So the government has been appointed to us. Now, there are some governments that do it well. Excuse me. There are some governments that don't do it that well. But the call on the Christian is to obey the government, that we're praying for the government. Why? Because the government is going to stand accountable to God regarding how they exercise their rule and how they exercise their governance. Now, the one thing we don't want to do, while we can say the government has been ordained by God to bring public order, to bring public safety, the government hasn't been established to bring about a deep morality and a godliness. The government isn't there to meet every one of our needs. The government has a limited sphere that it has been ordained to accomplish. Now, it's interesting, George Will, who's a conservative columnist, He talks about what kind of infantile society do we have when we are asking people to vote for candidates. These are the two questions. Who would you like to have for dinner? Or who would be best to take care of you? We don't ask those questions of the government. In fact, one woman interviewed was voting for Mitt Romney. Now, here's what her motivation was. She said this, I truly believe Romney is an honest, caring man. He may be, maybe not, I don't know. She said, he will lift us out of our spiritual and mental depression and help us believe again. Goodness gracious. If that's what we are looking to the government to do, well, the question is, where's the church? 
The church is to be involved in society for the good. The church, the Christian never looks to the government to produce a godliness or a morality. The church has been ordained by God to benefit society for its good, to be the conscious of the state. He says, you are salt. Now, in Greek syntax, you is emphasized. That means you, you alone. There aren't other groups, education, government. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light to the world. It's not an imperative where it says you better become this so that you can be salt. He says you are salt. You are light. It is what you are by virtue of God's spirit regenerating you. And you, that salt and light, it's a metaphor. This is our character and our works are to influence the world and the earth. That is the people, the societies, the communities that you live in. I mean, you are called to benefit society. You are called to be involved in society. And and the nature of salt is it does no good when it's piled up. It has to be spread out and rubbed into the meat to be effective. Light, if you light something and you put a cover over it, it does no good. It's in the nature of light to dispel darkness and to be put on a table to be used. Charles Spurgeon said, the church, spread yourselves out so you can stop the putrefying of the world. In other words, we as Christians ought to be involved in all levels of life. We should be in the government. We should be in the military. We should be in the university. We should be in Hollywood. We should be spread out, involved in society. That's the nature of salt and light. They don't work by themselves or collected together, but they have to be invested. This is where the church has gone off rail. And generally, we've gone off rail in two ways. And I want you to figure out what rail or what rut you have fallen into. Number one, the church has fallen off the rail and slipped into the rut of separatism. In other words, even from the beginning of the church, the Desert Fathers, this is a group in the 4th century A.D., they saw that the church was becoming contaminated, and so they went out into the desert to be pure and to be holy. I don't doubt their motivations, but they removed their influence from the society that they were claiming was growing corrupt. And you see it in the life of the monasteries, the history of monasteries. You also have situations where, where today we kind of retreat to this Christian subculture, and so we eat and we talk and we play and we make sport with just other Christians within our Christian fortress. We remove our faith, we remove our influence from the public square. Perhaps we're in fear. Perhaps we don't like conflict. But here's the reality. We tend to retreat to our fortress, and then we look over the walls and we bemoan how terrible society is becoming. Huh, I can't imagine why. All the salt's piled up in the corner, it's not in the meat. And so it's hard to complain about society just disintegrating when we have been appointed by God to be in society as salt and as light. That's one rut we fall into. The other rut is that we hook our wagon up to political power, king, royalty. Anytime the church has sought to get on the backs of politics and power, it distorts and dilutes the gospel. It takes away that transcendent, that transformative, culture-changing influence of the gospel. The gospel is not about America. The gospel is not about Western culture. The gospel is about all nations and all peoples and all tribes and all tongues. We are called to be invested. That's the first thing he's saying here. You are salt, you are light. You have to be involved in society. You have to be involved in the community. 
You have to be involved in the world. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great example of this. He was a Lutheran pastor, and you've heard me reference him before. Uh, in the first half of the 20th century, uh, he was a Lutheran pastor during, of course, the reign of Hitler. And uh, when Nazism began to rise and grow in steam and power, a lot of pastors just stuck their heads in the sand in Germany. Uh, others hooked their wagon to the power, and they, they began to hook up with Nazism. Well, Bonhoeffer continued to preach against its bigotry and racism and just the just the nastiness of Nazism. We got kicked out of his church. He could have moved to America. He had taught a seminary in New York. He could have moved to Britain. He had friends in Britain. But he stayed there because he wanted to raise up a new fleet of ministers that could go through the war so that when Germany, after the war, they would be there to preach the gospel. Well, two years before Germany invaded Poland in 39, he wrote these words. He said this, he said, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. So what he's saying is you're not really Christian if you're going to pull out or if you're going to hook up with the political powers that be. It's pretty strong language. I mean, how invested are you? And when you think about your own lives, what level of involvement do you have in the community that you're around? Your coworkers. I mean, I mean, how verbal are you? I, I think about Jesus for a minute. You know, I, I walked with a couple that came to my office through the Gospel of Luke real quick, and I was just thinking about the scandalous nature of Jesus Christ eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. And over and over, he did such scandalous things that they really criticized him. I mean, the religious establishment said that the guy's a wine-bibber. He's a party monster. I mean, he's drinking, he's partying, he's hanging out with prostitutes. He's hanging out with tax collectors and thieves. He was a scandal to the religious establishment. What scandalous thing have you done for the glory of God? I, I, I mean, who do you know that if another Christian saw you, you might be a little embarrassed? I mean, what have you done? How involved are you in, in your circles of friends that God has placed you? I mean, are you in the game? Or have you retreated? If you've retreated to a Christian subculture, at least according to Bonhoeffer, you've ceased to follow the call. That's the first thing I think Jesus is saying. It's you, the church, the disciple of Christ, you've got to be in the game. You've got to be in the culture. You've got to be in it. Now, I realize that there is some complicated issues with how far do we draw into the culture. I, I get that. But avoidance, I know, is not the answer. You know, we can discuss the other issues, but avoidance is not the answer. So, so I want to I call you to faith. How much are you involved? The relationships that God has put you in. How verbal, how scandalous are you being? And I mean that kind of tongue-in-cheek. Okay, the second thing I think he speaks to the church about is not only are the church to be involved, but the church is to be involved in, in, in a negative and a positive way. Salt and light. So I have two parts to this point. The first thing is the prevention of moral decay, that negative look. And then the promotion of godliness and truth. It's a positive look. So two points to this, that we are to be involved in society. We're to be involved in society for the prevention of moral decay. He says you are salt. Now, salt, you know, it's important to us. We still love salt right now. It 
flavors our food. It acts as a disinfectant. Those of you who have cut on your arm and you go swimming in the ocean, you know how quickly you heal when you're in salt water. Well, salt back then was just as important. It was a precious commodity. It was a necessity for life. It was taxed. It was so important. The Romans said the two most important things are salt and sunshine. It is very, very significant. Particularly in this culture, it was important as a preservative, that it preserved meat, that you'd rub it into meat and meat would last. Otherwise, without refrigeration in a dry and arid climate, it would putrefy in in a very short while. You'd lose the meat. And so Jesus is saying, you're salt. You're salt. You, You are for the prevention of decay in the society in which you live. Now, how do you do this? Well, you do this by your distinctiveness, but by your difference in character. You are to be radically different, not obnoxiously so. There are plenty of obnoxious Christians. We don't need any more. We have our fill. When I'm talking about the distinctiveness, it's not my boldness of how holy or pious I am, but walking out these Beatitudes. Let me tell you, if you go through each one, Blessed are the poor in spirit. We live in an age of arrogance. To be humble is to be different. It's attractive and it's different. To mourn over sin in an area, in a society that loves indulgence of the self and has no regard for the holiness of God, that's different. To be meek, to be meek in an age of power players, is to be very, very different. To hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than just personally filling my needs is very different. To be laboring for others, to be speaking of truth. I mean, to be merciful in an age of anger. I mean, to extend mercy instead of kind of grinding the axe. Or or to be pure in heart in this age of, of... Well, we're following our heart everywhere, but not towards purity. I mean, to be a peacemaker in an age of retaliation, you would be very different. I mean, think about it for a minute. That, that's how you salt people around you, that, that you are humble and you're mourning over sin, that, that you're meek, you, you're, you're so thankful to God, you're, you're seeking righteousness, you're extending mercy. You would be quite different, and you would be, you would be noticed, but you'd be noticed for the right reasons. So, so we want to work for the prevention of decay. It, it comes by being distinct. Now, we can see this on a big level. A William Wilberforce, for example, would be a classic example of fighting the decay of society. He was British, born in 1759. He was a parliamentarian by 21. He came to faith in Christ, and, of course, he, he came face-to-face with the horror of the British slave trade, labored for 46 years in Parliament in life, Dozen setbacks politically, physical setbacks, um, threats to his person. Three days before he died, it passed. He labored his life for the prevention of this slave trade. I mean, that is a great example for us, that the Christian in society can bring about change. But, but not that, that's a big-time example. Let me go something smaller. Carol and I have a friend when we were pastoring at the last church, there was a woman that lived in a small town. And in this small town, they wanted to, um, man wanted to establish a bar, a topless bar. And, and so she lobbied with some other folks in the town. And she would begin to point out and lobby, get petitions and say, listen, topless bar here is going to be 
disastrous for our town. It's going to be increased alcohol consumption. It's going to be um, ruining marriages or has a possibility of ruining marriages. It's a terrible witness for our children. It's a degradation of women and making them objects. And, and it, it cannot help our town. And uh, they were effective. And uh, they didn't get a license to operate. I mean, that's what we're talking about being prevented. It doesn't even have to be at that level. It can be in the office. When people are gossiping and criticizing the boss, you walk away. When they tell some sexist or racist joke, you don't laugh. You make it known. That isn't funny. You know, you act as a prevention. That's what you get for being a pastor. Pastors naturally do that. You walk in the room. Here comes the pastor. Here comes the preacher. Well, you know, you're not changing anybody's heart, but it does prevent a measure of decay. You can be the same way, that when you're clear on your faith and your morals, that it works as a prevention of decay. So let's, let's look at ourselves. Jesus here gives us a warning. He gives us a warning. He says, if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? It's good for nothing. You are irrelevant. You are useless. You are just to be thrown out. I mean, we want to do, we want to look at our lives and say, you know, what influence do we have? Are we distinct? Are we different from those around us? You know, Ron Sider is a um, sociologist at Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, he did this review, and I've referenced some of his work before, but he did this review between the born-again evangelical and just mainstream America. And he looked at some of the areas of life, such as divorce, such as pornography usage, such as materialism, such as tithing, um, spousal abuse, racism. And in these major areas, he found little difference between the born-again Christian and the self-proclaimed agnostic. We've lost the edge. We've lost a distinctiveness that we are to have so as to be salt. So if you do a little salinity check right now, if you examine your soul as to how different am I in the marketplace, in my community, in my family, all of us have families that have mixed faith and some of no faith. So what influence do you have? If you were taken out by a bus tomorrow, would people notice moral influence being gone? Would your family notice it? Would your church community notice it? Would there be someone to say, we miss his influence, his godly influence in this. Whatever the corner of life that you were in, would they miss it? I mean, someone in the office, when you walk into a room and they are telling a joke, do they stop? Again, I don't see that as changing anybody's hearts, but you obviously are distinct enough to be noticed. So I would ask you to examine your heart on that. And have you been hiding? I mean, have you been silent when you should be outspoken? I mean, can you not say, I don't think that's a humorous joke. I think you're making, or, or I don't think it's helpful to gossip about the boss. Or, you know, that you work hard, that if other people are shortchanging the employer on their work, you're not. You work hard for your dollar. That is noticed. Okay, so that's the negative aspect. So the church, you're to be involved, and you're to be involved in the prevention of decay. That's the negative. The positive is this, that you are to promote the good. You are to promote the truth and the gospel. And we see this when he says, you are the light. Again, when he says, you are the light, the presumption is that you exist in darkness. This world is a darkened place. Now, I know, and I want you to know, that when I speak about the world being darkened, I'm not saying we're like the dark ages, we're backward, or I'm not saying that we're, we're ignorant. 
I, I know that in the last 100 years, the technological and the medical and the scientific advances have been profound. They have been, no question about it. But isn't it interesting, when you look at these scientific advances that we've made, these technological advances, have there been the same advances in our understanding of morality, culture, civility? I mean, are we any closer to really knowing those bigger questions of life, like purpose to life and, and the nature of God? What is true morality? Is there a greater amount of peace in our world? Is there a greater amount of, of contentment among people? Is there a greater amount of love? I don't see it. I mean, the, you know, the scientific discoveries might be like this, but, but is there really the same growth in humanity? Are we more considerate and compassionate to one another? Absolutely not. I mean, we are actually more effective at being destructive. The tools that we have now help us to be actually more destructive. That's what I mean by a darkened world. We don't understand the nature of God. We're in the dark. We're confused. We're, we have these moral and these civil and these spiritual ambiguities in our life. I remember going to Linville Caverns with Carol and the kids, and so you walk through it for a while, and you get to a place, and they do it with every group, I imagine, and they say, okay, just don't, anybody move, we're going to turn the lights out. And so Linville Caverns, I don't know how deep you are on the hill, but you're deep in there. And, and he really warns us, I'm like, come on, come on, you're going to turn the light out, no big deal. He, and he kept warning us on how scary it is. Well, he turns out the light. I mean, you couldn't see your face in front. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It's, they said it's total darkness. There's no peripheral. There's no secondary light. It's just black. And so it's funny for about a second. And then I'm, I'm grabbing the kids because I'm thinking, uh, immediately there's like caverns now right near me that the kids could just fall off into. And I'm terrified that we're going to all die and I'm thinking, okay, that was good, that worked, that worked. You can turn the light on now. When he turned the light on, it was like, thank you. Everything got clear, and you felt safe and peaceful. And it was just, it reminds me that when people are darkened to the, to the glory of God and the gospel, that they live in great confusion. And so it's into this darkness, this world's darkness, that Jesus says to you, you're the light. You will be the light to them. You'll be the light. Now, it's a derivative light. It isn't intrinsically part of you, but it's from the gospel in you. Jesus said in John 8, 12, get this, it would have been a magnificent scene. He said, he says in the temple, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, when he said that in the temple, most scholars believe that he was by these four huge pillars that went all the way to the top of the temple walls, four pillars, and they had these big baths filled with 65 liters of oil. And they would light those at night. And you could see the light all over Jerusalem. And those pillars were there to remind the people of the glory of God when he led them out of uh, slavery, the darkness of slavery in Egypt. And it was reminding them of the pillar of fire as God led them through the darkness and out of the darkness. And so Jesus, now God in the flesh, says, I am the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me, will no longer be in darkness, but they will be the light of life. Following Christ will be the light of life. He says, now you are the light of the world. People of God, you are. There is no other light that will come. Christ has come. He's brought his gospel. He's established his kingdom. He's called you into it. He's given you the light of the gospel. You're now the light to the world. You alone. There is no other. Education won't do it. Government won't do it. Changing economic times won't do it. You are the light of the world. 
And it is through your life and your words that people are going to see the light of the gospel. It's through that regenerating effect that your lives are being changed in purity and holiness and works. Good works are really significant. I don't want you thinking we're building up for a new evangelistic campaign that we're going to start. I don't want to start an evangelistic campaign. I don't think we need one. I think you just need to be light. I think you just need to, whatever culture and whatever community you're in, you just need to start working for the good of others. That's what he means by the good works. He says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. Good, that word for good doesn't mean a qualitative good. It means an attractive, winsome good. The good works that kind of display this light, they're to be other-centered. These works that display the light are other-centered. You're doing things for people who cannot pay you back. It's one thing. We love to do things for our family and for our friends. We invite them over. They come over and invite us, and it goes back and forth. I'm talking about serving people that can't serve you. They'll never serve. They may not even appreciate what you're doing. But that's light. So I think about a, a man in this congregation meets uh, either once or twice a week or regularly with uh, a group of young students trying to get out of some dark corners that they've been in life, training them to run their own business, teaching them, mentoring them. And I think about many of you working with the Corinth. You're serving them. You're here every Wednesday night. I mean, it's a great effort you're making. They can never pay you back. You're teaching them math and English and these things. That's what I'm talking about. This light that shines, that displays the gospel to people. Not just it, it should be centered on other people. It also is going to be sacrificial. A light that shines is sacrificial. It's going to cost you. I mean, the candle that produces light is consumed by the light it produces. I mean, the candle goes down. The candle doesn't stay as it is. And, and, and you, it's going, to, it's going to be costly in terms of inconvenience. I don't think anybody here will shed blood for the gospel. But it will be inconvenient in terms of time and effort, perhaps money. But again, that displays the glory of God as you're willing to sacrifice yourself for others. I would encourage you to do works that are faith-filled. Don't just operate in the simple little gifts that you have, but do things that require faith. You know, it says in Romans 14, 25, without faith it's impossible to please God. So are you doing things? Are you willing to try things? I love it when someone says, I've never done this, but I'm going to try it. I'm like, great. How else can you see the power of God unless you begin to reach for that which is beyond your grasp? And then when you get a hold of it, you know that God has enabled you. So other works that we're to do, we are to testify to the gospel. To be light is to declare the gospel. Now, Martin Luther and John Calvin said that a great work among the believers that shines the light of the glory of God is to preach the gospel. When I speak about preaching the gospel, I don't mean evangelistic rallies. I mean, and I don't mean convincing people and kind of strong-arming them to believe what we believe. I mean it's simply declaring God has loved the world, that he has sent his son to bear our sins and our shame and our guilt so that by faith we might be adopted by God. It's a simple declaration. It's a historical event. We just declare it. We don't have to call them, you know, to, okay, do you have any? You know, we don't have to wrestle them into belief. We just declare it. We are heralds. We are ambassadors. That's all. And that is a good work. So, so first thing, church, we have to be involved in society. I want you to think about the level of involvement you have. 
Secondly, we want to be involved in society for the prevention of decay by being distinct, but also for the promotion of good through our works and through our words. It's really important. You know, the, the church, sadly, is not seen favorably among culture. So if you took a survey about how favorable preachers are considered, only 44% of Americans look upon pastors with favor. So that means less than half will look at a pastor as, yeah, an important part of the community. You know, the other half would say, hey, he's a preacher. He's just a preacher. What's worse is when you ask about the evangelical church, only 22% of Americans look with favor on the evangelical church. That means that only one out of five people would say, what do you think of an evangelical? And they would say, not much. Why? Well, I think because we have defined ourselves by what we're against and not what we're for. So we can lobby all day long with great vitriol over abortion being a tragedy, which I believe it is. But are we promoting adoption? Are we willing to take single mothers who want to carry their children into our home or providing help for them or training for them? Are we promoting it at all? Or are we just saying we don't want this, but we have nothing to offer? Or marriage. We're just aghast at the redefining of marriage. But our evangelical marriages, are we striving to have marriages that are so lovely to look at that people want to get married? Or are we just complaining about the marriages that are being redefined? Do you see? I mean, the evangelical church is known for being against all these things. What are we known for? We are called to benefit society. You know, I remember even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah tells the people in exile, pray for the nation of Babylon. Pray for them. Pray for their good. Do we do that? It's a different spin. So, so, so first, I'm calling you, regardless of who's in the White House, it can be a kangaroo in the White House. We are called to be involved in society. That's no comment on Obama. I would have said the same thing with a Republican. I promise you I would have. I'm, not, I'm serious. We are to be involved in society, and we are to be involved for the prevention of decay by being distinct, for the promotion of good by us laboring for the benefit of others outside of our little circle. And then thirdly, that we, the church, are to display the glory of God by the works that we do. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. This is really important. When the gospel takes hold of you, your lives begin to change, and it brings forth a light. Our works are done so that God would be, would be honored. You know, the candle isn't praised, it's the light. We want to do things in such a manner that are so winsome, so good, that people are thanking God that we've come into our life, into their lives. We, our motivation is, God, I want you glorified. That when you are engaging in society and you are helping your neighbor who's a pagan and who's made all kinds of rude comments about the faith, but you see him laboring in his backyard and you've got an extra hour, go over there and help him without any expectation of return, without any expectation of thanks. So what we've tried to do. We've tried to just be good neighbors. Just to be good neighbors for the glory of God. So that's the call. Regardless of governments, 
presidents, congresses. We are the church. You are salt. You are light. You're called to be involved, to be preventing moral decay, promoting godliness and goodness for the glory of God. So let's take a few minutes right now and um, let's pray. Uh, and, and I would say this. Now, so in this time of corporate prayer, we're thinking corporately. We're not thinking individually. And, and I mean by that that let's, let's consider how we perhaps have failed in our fear, you know, our fear of conflict within our culture, we pull out. Perhaps we want to uh, confess, um, yeah, a, a refusal to get engaged. You know, we haven't been worried about culture. We've let, we've let culture slide and we've pulled the salt out. Maybe we want to confess it. We want to ask for grace, maybe to re-engage our neighbors, to re-engage. This is what it means to be missional. This is what it means to be a Christian. Christian is always on mission. He's always seeking to promote and declare the glory of God through his words and his deeds. And so let's ask for grace for that as a church, that this church, Christ's covenant church, would be more engaged in society for the glory of God in a winsome way, in a positive way, not always slamming culture but by promoting the glory of God and our willingness to expend ourselves for the benefits of others. I will start. Jack will close this. We've got some time. So just think and pray out loud. And, and I would ask you, and I always pray this, and, and just pray brief prayers. It doesn't make, you know, when, when someone prays a long prayer, it's always tough to follow that. And, and don't be mindful. Don't, don't be in competition. Let's just pray brief, heartfelt prayers. Father, would you give us grace uh, to come under right conviction over our removing of salt and light that you have made us and give us grace to move, move forward even this week, Father, uh, for the glory of your name and for our ultimate joy.